it is a great pleasure and honor to welcome a longtime friend and colleague, Fritjof Capra, to the new school. Um, Fritjof's work, I'll just speak briefly about it, is really extraordinary. He is, is one of the, the great uh, scientific and social thinkers of our time. He's a physicist and systems theorist, founding director of the Center for Ecoliteracy in Berkeley, which promotes ecology and systems thinking in primary and secondary education. He's on the faculty of Schumacher College in England, and he's written seven international bestsellers, starting with the Tao of Physics in 75, The Turning Point in 82, Uncommon Wisdom in 88, The Science of Life in 96, Hidden Connections in 2002, and most recently a fabulous book called The Science of Leonardo, which is available in paperback, and I commend to you all. He's also written books on green politics, on belonging to the universe, and eco-management. Fritjof was trained in theoretical physics at the University of Vienna in 19, uh, and did uh, research in particle physics at the University of Paris, the University of California, Santa Cruz, the Stanford Linear Accelerator, Imperial College London, and Lawrence Berkeley Lab at UC Berkeley. Um, I thought uh, that just as a little tiny insight into the contributions Fritjof has made as I spent much of this week reviewing uh, his work, one thing really stood out for me. And that is that on June 18, 2004, an unusual new landmark was unveiled at CERN, which is the, uh, the European Center for Research in Particle Physics in Geneva. It was a two meter tall statue of the Indian deity Shiva Nataraja, the Lord of Dance. The statue symbolizing Shiva's cosmic dance of creation and destruction was given to CERN by the Indian government to celebrate the research center's long association with India. The parallel between Shiva's dance and the dance of subatomic particles, this is at this great center for research, was first discussed by Fritjof Capra in an article titled The Dance of Shiva, the Hindu View of Matter in the Light of Modern Physics, published in Main Currents in Modern Thought in 1972. Shiva's cosmic dance then became a central metaphor in Fritjof's international bestseller, The Tao of Physics, which was published in 75 and is in print in over 40 editions around the world. A special plaque next to the Shiva statue at CERN explains the significance of the metaphor of Shiva's cosmic dance with several quotations from the Tao of Physics. And part of the plaque text says, Fritjof Capra has explained that modern physics has shown that the rhythm of creation and destruction is not only manifest in the turn of the seasons and in the birth and death of all living creatures, but is also the very essence of inorganic matter and that for the modern physicists, Shiva's dance is the dance of subatomic matter. It is indeed, as Capra concluded, hundreds of years ago, Indian artists created visual images of dancing Shivas in a beautiful series of bronzes. In our time, physicists have used the most advanced technology to portray the patterns of the cosmic dance. The metaphor of the cosmic dance thus unifies ancient mythology, religious art, and modern physics. Fritjof Kapra, welcome to the New School. Thank you. Uh -huh.
I must say this introduction is rather overwhelming. And, uh, I was thinking to myself, this had better be good after this introduction. Well, let me start on a very personal note. Uh, um, you, you mentioned to me that you come here today in the middle of a juice fast. Yes, you kindly invited me to lunch, and I forgot that I would be in, in the middle of my fast, which I do, you know, every, every year or so in, in the fall, to just for, for health reasons. So I've brought my juice, and um, I'm on the fifth day, and I, I'll do two more days, a seven-day fast, and uh, it always helps me a lot to just rejuvenate and, and clean out my body. And, and I follow a, a, a prescription from a, um, I think he was Finnish, a Finnish uh, nutritionist, Pavo Airola. Yeah. Are you familiar? Yeah. You know him, mm -hmm. yeah? Mm -hmm. And I still have his book, which I bought you know, ages ago mm -hmm. in the 70s. Mm -hmm. And he explains that, that when you do a juice fast, that the citrus fruit, which you're supposed to drink in the morning, actually contains enzymes that uh, recycle the proteins that are uh, gained when uh, the fat decomposes, when you lose various uh, you know, waste products in the body, then the proteins that are in there are not expelled but are recycled by these enzymes in citrus fruit. I found this rather Marvelous, but but it's uh, I know that something like this must take place because I don't feel weak. You know, I feel a little weaker than mm -hmm. usual. But you know, yesterday I played a one-hour tennis match and mm -hmm. and I felt great. You know, and it was not the the senior citizen doubles which I should play. <laughs> you know, it was a singles match for a whole hour and pretty pretty rigorous with a guy who is 25 years younger. You mm -hmm. know. And so, so the, the fast works extremely well. <laughs> now, it's been a while since I fasted, and I, it's on my list of things to do again. But, um, uh, <laughs> but I found about the fourth or fifth day of a fast that a certain clarity tended yeah. to emerge. Yeah, because the first three days are tough, and, right. and then, and then you don't have fantasies about food any longer, right. and, and you know it's. So in this yeah. clarity, what do you find yourself thinking about? Hmm. <laughs> um, well, I, uh, I'm engaged in a number of projects, uh, about two or three usually. One is the Center for Ecoliteracy, which is one of my main activities, and uh, we have spent about 20 years working with schools to develop a certain pedagogy to teach ecology in schools. We, we identified the basic principles of ecology that we want to teach because they are related to sustainability. And uh, it's not so obvious how to do this in, in public schools. So we spent a lot of time with educators uh, in, in the greater Bay Area in Northern California and developed an approach which is systemic because we want ecology to be the core of the curriculum, not a, a, a discipline of environmental studies, but the core of the curriculum. And it is also an experiential approach because we don't want to just produce 
brilliant theoretical ecologists in our young students, but want to really uh, help them to establish a relationship with nature, an emotional and, if you wish, spiritual relationship with nature. And so the learning has to be experiential. We take them out into nature, we take them into school gardens, we take them to farms, we do creek restorations and things like that. And we have been very successful, I'm, I'm happy to tell you, um, after, this, after these 15, 20 years, we sort of reorganized uh, the, the center and uh, focusing more on publications, uh, outreach, and seminars. So we have coalitions now with, with major departments of education, like at Columbia University, not at Yale, I'm sorry, mm -hmm. but uh, mm -hmm. Columbia. <laughs> and uh, we uh, also have a, a, a collaboration with the National Association of Botanical Gardens who have a, an educational component. And so we work with them. And our specialty is to prepare curriculum materials that uh, reflect uh, basic ecological knowledge in, in a coherent and systemic way and which also satisfy the various requirements you know, imposed on schools by the federal government, the state government, and so on. Because otherwise, if you, if you show something to teachers and say, here's a new curriculum, you should try that out, they just put it on a shelf. They don't even look at it. But if you tell them that this satisfies all the criteria from Sacramento and from Washington, D.C., then they get interested because they have a hard time putting curricula together that do that. Mm -hmm. So we have done that with the help of many associations. And then we started doing seminars about five years ago. And that was a big surprise because we hoped that people would come not only from California, but also from the rest of the country. In fact, they came from all over the world. How wonderful. With, with the internet, you know, we have an extensive website. Mm -hmm. We advertised the seminars, and people came from Australia, from Brazil, from Norway. And of course, having San Francisco as an attraction is very helpful, because these, these young teachers, they were mainly, mainly teachers, you know, some uh, school administrators. And these teachers said, well, say, I remember a Danish couple who were teachers both, and they said, we always wanted to come to San Francisco. Right. Now the school pays half of the trip, so <laughs> off, off they went. And so our seminars are always sold out. There's always a long waiting list, and, and they work really well. Mm -hmm. so, so that's one of the things. Um, it's a, a major engagement. Uh, the other one is writing. Uh, I still do research about Leonardo's science. Uh, once you get into Leonardo da Vinci, it's difficult to get away from him yeah. because he has done so much. He has gone so far in the various sciences that I'm now working on a second book, How going deeper. How in. For instance, you yeah. know, hardly anybody knows, and we could, we could take a poll here, how many people know that Leonardo da Vinci was a first-rate geologist or botanist. You know? People know about his machines, they know about his anatomical drawings, but he did so many other things, and so I'm, I'm probing deeper into those things. And he described himself as an unlettered man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yes. And, and uh, I, I would say the third thing that I'm doing, Michael, is uh, you know, with the Center for Eco Literacy and also in other uh, domains, 
to you know remain an activist and and you know trying uh, to do things um, for you know the, the the greater good and of course uh, like I think uh, most of you. Um, I was very excited when Obama was elected uh, a year ago and saw that there's really a, a new avenue now. And when his wife opened an organic garden at the White House with school children, I thought, ha, huh, you know, this, this will be another, another entree. And, and I've tried to make contact with the Obama administration, which is not easy, especially in the first year. But uh, I'm, I'm confident now, I'm also working with Lester Brown, and I would like to talk about his book, Plan B, uh, later today. And I'm working with him also, and I think we, we sort of have found a, a lead now that I'm quite confident that we'll meet with uh, some representatives of, of the administration next year to, to bring these ideas into, into our national politics, which would have been impossible you know, in the previous administration. But, and actually, uh, a colleague of mine who is also on board of the Center for Eco-Literacy, David Orr, was at the White House about two years ago, and he met with Dick Cheney and some corporate bosses, and not surprisingly, and you know, some people high in the administration. And he spent an hour telling them about the interconnectedness of world problems and the need to think systemically and, you know, the challenge of sustainability. And so then I asked him, and what was the result? And he said, they didn't get it. Right. You know, it's just flat out, he said, they didn't get it. And so, now we have a White House now, that gets it. And now, yeah, that, no. I believe uh, Obama is a systemic thinker. You well, know? he clearly you gets this. it. What he can do about it yeah. is a whole other question. Yeah, yeah. of course, yeah. Um, so those are sort of the things I'm in, involved in. Those are three major themes that I'd like to come back to. But for our audience, um, I just want to take a couple of minutes to frame those themes with a, a brief synopsis of some of your main pieces of work. So we've talked about the Tao of Physics, which found striking parallels between ancient mystical traditions and 20th century physics. Then in the turning point, you took that revolution in modern physics and suggested it foreshadowed a similar revolution in many other sciences, including biology, medicine, psychology, and economics. In Uncommon Wisdom, which is a book I really love, um, you uh, talked about the personal encounters uh, that you had with an extraordinary range of people that shaped the theme of the turning point. And then in The Web of Life, which is also a wonderful book, you started from the conceptual framework of the turning point and went into the mathematics of complexity and a synthesis of recent nonlinear theories of living systems that have increased our understanding of key characteristics of life. Um, and um, then you did a book called Hidden Connections, A Science for Sustainable Living, which extended the analysis to human organizations, economic globalization, biotechnology, and sustainable communities. There's a beautiful book that you did with David Steinel Rast called Belonging to the Universe. He's a Benedictine month, monk, and you explored parallels between new paradigm thinking in science and in religion, and then Science of Leonardo. Uh, there have been other books, but that's a 
representative yeah. Uh, yeah. summary. Um, and we also talked, and I hope we get to this as well, about the interface between your systems biology complexity thinking and uh, two or three fields where Commonweal works. One is integrative medicine. Uh, a second is environmental health and what we call the ecological paradigm of health. Right. And the third is permaculture, gardening, and mm -hmm. horticulture, which yes. is, a, as you know, a design yes. approach to not only right. horticulture. But, so there's a very rich set of issues. But I just thought for our audience, just the context of the extraordinary contribution you've made in these fields would be helpful. Well, let me maybe say a few things about, yeah. about this uh, sequence. Um, what happened was that uh, after writing the Tao of Physics, um, the book uh, became very well known, uh, you know, much more than I had ever dreamed. And I got a lot of invitations for lectures and seminars uh, with you know, various organizations, uh, everything from architects to nurses to psychotherapists, uh, economists, uh, uh, you know, anthropologists, you know, practically people from all fields. And, and then in the 70s, you remember, there was this big New Age movement in California. They had huge conferences with 2,000 people and so on. I spoke at many of those. So I met a lot of people uh, who told me then that in their particular fields, they observed the same paradigm shift, the same uh, move toward a holistic and ecological worldview as I had described in physics. So I became interested in these other fields. And uh, at the same time, uh, I became more of an activist uh, than I had been uh, before. I was very much influenced by the movements of the 1960s, as I think many of us here were. And uh, you could say that, that the 60s uh, symbolize um, two kinds of expansions of consciousness. One toward the political, and remember we talked about consciousness raising in those days, mm -hmm. and the other one toward the spiritual. Mm -hmm. And I was affected by both of those in the 60s, and then in the 70s I went into the spiritual direction first with the Tao of Physics, but then with the turning point I also um, thought about how to use um, this new worldview uh, to uh, you know, address the key problems of the world. And so I became very active in, the Turning Point was published in 82, and then in the 80s I was very active in the anti-nuclear movement, in the peace movement, in the ecology movement, and, and I spoke at various conferences and, and, and meetings. And um, after that, um, in the 90s, I had done 10 years of activism. Uh, as you know, I also founded an, an, an institute called the Elmwood Institute, yes. which we called an ecological think tank, or we also called it a think and do tank. A wonderful place. And, and so after those 10 years, I thought that I would uh, take the luxury to write another scientific book because I had done 10 years of activism, and, and that's how I wrote The Web of Life, which is basically about you know, a systems view of life, complexity theory, and all that. 
But uh, I also then, with some friends, founded the Center for Ecoliteracy, so it, it didn't stay only theoretical. But the Web of Life is really a new departure because uh, in the turning point, um, conceptually, I was in a transition phase between physics and the life sciences. I thought at the beginning that the new physics could be a model for a new medicine, a new economics, a new psychology, and so on. So I related everything to the paradigm shift in physics. And it was Gregory Bateson, whom I met in the 80s, in the, actually he died in 1980, I met him in 78, and, and had a lot of conversations with him for two years. And it was he who really convinced me that I had to leave physics thinking, you know, and get into a broader uh, framework because the problems I was interested in, like health, uh, sustainability, uh, the management of human organizations, and all of that, all had to do with life. You know, individual organisms, social systems, ecosystems. So I really needed a scientific framework to um, describe uh, life in all its manifestations. And in the turning point, one chapter that attempts to do that is called the system's view of life. That was uh, what I was looking for, but it didn't exist at the time, you know, in, in the late 70s, early 80s. So I, I pulled together all kinds of pieces from various things that I could gather. And it was only with uh, complexity theory and then the newer theories uh, like Prigogine's theory of dissipative structures and Maturana's idea of uh, cognition and autopoiesis and, and these theories where one could really go toward this systemic uh, approach. And then I still left out the social domain because it was just too much. And then in the hidden connections, I integrated that, and you know, I say I integrated that. It was not that easy. It was another ten years of, or five years of discussions with sociologists, with managers, with all kinds of of people. But you know, I managed to find a synthesis. And to me, this book, uh, the Hidden Connections, is sort of the culmination of this work. And uh, I'm, I'm very happy to say that completely holds up. It was published in 2002, and I wouldn't change anything now if, if I could. I, mean, I would update certain things, but there's nothing wrong with the synthesis as far as I can see. So, so then again, I thought a few years ago, uh, and, and you know, my agent asked, and everybody asks when you give a talk as, a, as an author, the first question they ask you is, what's your next book, you know? <laughs> and so, um, uh, and I also, you know, I am a writer and I love writing. And so I thought, what could be next? And I didn't see anything on the horizon because this synthesis of the hidden connections stands up. Right. And I have nothing new to say, you know, substantially new. Mm -hmm. And so I went back to an old dream I've had for 30 years to sometimes study the science of Leonardo and right. finally did it. And, and, and I remember... Uh, my brother and I are very close. He's a filmmaker in Los Angeles. And some of you may know the movie Mindwalk, which we produced together. And uh, so I, I told him about this uh, Leonardo idea on a walk in the hills in Malibu. And uh, 
he liked it. He said it was very intriguing. And he said, it's maybe not a book, maybe a monograph, a, an article in a magazine, you know. And I didn't know. And I had certain hunches. And then when I started the research, and after the first couple of years of research, I had about 600 pages of notes. So that not only is it a full-sized book, I it's have two so, books. It's two books, yeah. yeah. I have so many notes left over that it's two books. Yeah. So again, you know, this was a kind of luxury. And also this came, it was a little bit of an escapism, I would say, from the political point of view. Because during the Bush years, you know, what, what could I do? Get totally depressed, you know, and try things. And we, we built up our work at the Center for Eco-Literacy. And we are now pretty far ahead of everybody else who is doing this work in schools, food, nutrition, and, and so on. And so we are now really in the time because we've done 10 years of homework. And so I sort of escaped into the Renaissance for five years, and it was just wonderful. You know? And, and I've, I've read this book, which I find extraordinary, but what has, what has the impact on you been? of immersing yourself in Leonardo's work? Well, it was, it was really interesting because, well, I should just say for everybody that, as you probably know, Leonardo lived 100 years before Galileo, and he developed a complete uh, empirical approach to knowledge, which we now call the scientific method. And uh, in biographies and books by historians, about Leonardo, which are mostly written by art historians, uh, you will find that he has this empirical approach, but they always say, can we really look at him as a scientist? You know, I mean, he, he said so many other things and it's so confused. And I really was able, I think, to clarify this and really show that his empirical method is very solid. For instance, it includes what nobody else has noticed um, it includes the technique of making theoretical models. Um, uh, for example, when he studies the flow of water, he says, I can't see the particles of water. To, to trace the flow lines is very difficult, even today. And he invented a lot of methods like putting dye into the water, or, you know, things like that, that are still used today by hydrodynamicists. But he also uh, filled a barrel with millet and poured out the millet because there he could see the grains and he realized that they're the same flow lines. Now this is very modern. This was in, in the Renaissance. Even, even in the 17th century, nobody did that. You know, building these theoretical models. So he had these extraordinary powers of observation. Yeah. And he would follow somebody in the streets for long enough That's to right. really get a grasp and then go home and, and, and draw them and do yeah. a complete yeah. drawing of the individual. But yeah. what I also discovered, and in fact that was my, my hunch at the beginning, yeah. that Leonardo's science should not be compared with Galileo's or with Newton's. His approach was the approach of a painter and in, in my research I found a wonderful line where he says, Painting embraces in itself all the forms of nature. Mm -hmm. And that's what he was studying, the living forms of nature. And so his science from the beginning is a holistic science. He was a systemic thinker. He studied complex phenomena from a holistic approach. And you see, the subtlety, Michael, is that he was a mechanical genius. 
but his science was not mechanistic. Right, he supported and, himself making war machines for people. Yeah, yeah. Right. And, and he invented right. countless mechanisms, right. and he really knew his mechanics. But he hated war. Yeah, he hated war. He hated war and, and was deeply, deeply committed and compassionate toward life. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So in, in taking him as, a, as your subject, it seems to me so that... So you asked me, excuse yeah, me, what yeah. I've learned. You asked yeah, me what I I've did. learned. Yeah. Well, I was um, forced to really think very deeply once more, which I hadn't done since mm -hmm. the Tao of Physics, about the nature of science, the nature of uh, philosophy, uh, the nature of truth, uh, the relationship between mind and body, mm -hmm. uh, the nature of the soul, and so on. Very deep questions. And, and what did you decide about the nature of the soul? Well, uh, I decided that Leonardo's use of the soul, which he has taken from Aristotle, comes very close to our modern concept of cognition, the process of knowledge. Mm -hmm. He says that uh, uh, the soul is uh, the, has two main functions. It moves the body and it also composes the body. Mm -hmm. So in modern language, we would say it is the self-organizing process of, an, of a living organism. And this is what Maturana calls cognition. And so, and, and not only Maturana, but there's a whole field of cognitive science. So I found taking Leonardo's image, uh, concept of the soul, and it, comparing it to uh, cognitive science has been extremely fruitful. One, th one question I want to ask you, and perhaps I just haven't read enough of your work to know the answer to this, but you've, you've been in dialogue with many mystics, uh, real mystics, but I can't tell yet whether you yourself consider yourself to be a mystic or no. not. No. Yeah. No. Okay. So, in other words, you find the dialogue fruitful, but that isn't where your mind takes you. No, because, uh, you know, I, I don't go uh, very deep in meditation. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've, I've practiced Tai Chi now for I don't know how mm -hmm. many years, but uh, continuously for about 20 years and then there was a gap before and another 10 years before that. So I, I do, I have a meditative practice but uh, I do so many other things that you know, I always think I should practice more. I don't, I don't practice it every day, for instance, you know, two or three times a week in, in a good week, you know. But for example, and you had an extraordinary conversation in Uncommon Wisdom with Stan Groff. Yeah. who is the father of LSD psychotherapy. And speaking of water and Leonardo's uh, fascination with the structure yeah. of water, uh, you and Graf were comparing uh, Graf's experience with LSD therapy and the metaphor that, of water that comes to people, that right. the ocean right. becoming the cloud, becoming right. the crystalline yeah. snowdrop, yeah. and so on. And that provoked you uh, to uh, observations on water and its structure as well. And so that theme of uh, water, uh, as I remember the conversation, it moved into something that I find utterly central in your book and a deep fascination to me, which is the, the fundamental oneness of Yeah, of absolutely, yeah. yes. And, um, and that sense of oneness as an organizing principle yeah. is one that I find in so many different arenas of mm -hmm. 
uh, frontier thought mm -hmm. that, uh, and you've, you've made a tremendous contribution to that movement, I think. Thank you. Well, so have you, Michael. And, and let me ask you now, um, the last time we had extensive conversations, um, you were very interested in this uh, juncture of personal health and environmental health. Mm -hmm. And I remember a, a very fascinating paper you wrote about mm -hmm. this. It must have been more than 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. And have you been thinking more along these lines? Mm -hmm. Because I think when, when you really apply this idea of oneness mm -hmm. in a practical way, thinking systemically, you make connections between things, as you did between mm -hmm. individual health and ecological health. Mm -hmm. Well, it's fascinating. I, I find that, you know, I understand my life looking backward better than I understood it as I've lived yeah. it. Uh, when I was at Yale, my two fields of work were psychology and politics. Mm -hmm. And I've discovered, and my mother was a psychologist, my father was a political philosopher. Mm -hmm. So as the oldest son, I think I was trying to balance these yeah. two. And I think that up to now, where I see Commonweal as a place where we look at both personal healing and planetary healing, yes. that same balance of the individual mm -hmm. psyche, the individual self, and, and the planetary uh, uh, problematique has, is, has fascinated me. Um, and Commonweal started uh, its work with kids with learning and behavior disorders and then went on from that to the chronic and degenerative illnesses of adults. And then, as you mentioned, this uh, with a focus on cancer, and then, as you mentioned, uh, has always had an interest, but moved very deeply into environmental health. Mm -hmm. when, when did you move in this direction at Commonweal? Uh, it can really be dated. It, it goes all the way back to the beginning of Commonweal in 1976. Oh, really? oh, yeah, really? we were uh -huh. involved uh, with uh, toxic chemicals and radioactive dumping at the Farallones in the earliest mm -hmm. years of mm -hmm. Commonweal. But in 19, uh, in, at the time of the Earth Summit, Mm -hmm. We really recommitted to sustainability mm -hmm. as a mm -hmm. field. And out of uh, our work with the whole series of UN conferences that followed mm -hmm. the Earth Summit on population, on you know, a whole set of other issues, uh, we decided to focus more on toxic chemicals. Um, mm -hmm. And so... Um, well, it's also related to the cancer work, isn't absolutely, it? Absolutely, yeah. deeply yeah. related to the cancer yeah. work. But the work on toxic chemicals, which has preoccupied us for the last 15 years in our environmental health work, led back mm. to a place that I think is a particularly fruitful juncture for us to talk about, which is what we, we created an international partnership called the Collaborative on Health and the Environment, mm -hmm. which is about three to 4,000 people around the world who are dedicated to dialogue about the new mm -hmm. science on environmental health. And that relates to the discovery of endocrine disrupting chemicals, mm -hmm. which you know, can, at parts per billion, can affect fetal programming and lifelong mm -hmm. illness. But that same science led to an ecological paradigm of health in which genes, gene expression, and the whole raft, not just of chemicals, but all the other contributing factors uh, of you know, electromagnetic fields, nanotechnology, yeah. Yeah. biotechnology, uh, chemicals, diet, nutrition, stress, uh, exercise, exposure to light, mm -hmm. the, the myriad things that are going on, 
lead to uh, complexity theory mm -hmm. at the heart mm -hmm. of the interface between the environment and integrative medicine. Mm -hmm. And uh, so uh, we have been working on that interface. Now the complexity leads you to recognize that the search for individual causes of modern chronic mm -hmm. diseases is hopeless because mm -hmm. different people get the same illness mm -hmm. for different sets of reasons. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And therefore, you have different pathways coming to final common pathways whether they be neurological or cardiovascular mm -hmm. or cancer or whatever. And, and that's not only true for cancer, you find Not at this, all, uh, it's the whole wide set uh, of illnesses. Mm -hmm. So autism, for example, yeah. uh -huh. you know, there's an epidemic of autism. People get there in different ways. Mm -hmm. Heart disease, people get there in different ways. Cancer, autoimmune diseases, uh, and so on. Well, there's an, there's a, uh, an idea, I mean, I'm, I'm just, spontaneously coming up with mm -hmm. this analogy. In, in complexity theory, when you have highly nonlinear systems and they interact with an environment or with other systems, it turns out there are only a few limited possibilities of uh, uh, you know, forming structures or behavior patterns. And this is why, say, botanists have studied uh, the the shape, uh, what what is called uh, morphology, you know, the creation of uh, biological form, and there are certain types of leaves, but there's not an infinite number of leaves. There's a finite number, and the same, you know, with all the plants and and animals. And you could say maybe that when an organism encounters a very complex environment, which is pathological, partly pathological, there are only a few avenues for illness to, to emerge. And, That's exactly right. And on the other hand, you know, a particular illness can have several pathways. Absolutely. That's and, really and interesting. In Martha uh -huh. Herbert at Harvard, who's one of the great scholars of autism, and we work closely with on autism, which is a special interest, mm -hmm. um, she talks about final common pathways, which is uh -huh. your point yeah, about yeah. morphology. Yeah. That there are yeah. only a certain discrete number of ways in which illness can right. express yeah. in a body. Yeah. And so those are the final common pathways that are reached yeah. in yeah. different ways. And this would be the attractors, as a metaphor here, the attractors of complexity theory, exactly which are right. mathematical That's patterns. Exactly. But so the complexity yeah. can make one feel hopeless, but the interesting consequence is that what you begin to realize, both at a public health level and a personal health level, is that given the extraordinary complexity of the different ways that somebody might have gotten to an illness, that any source of stress that you can reduce, mm. or any source of nourishment or resilience that you can increase, mm -hmm. will ultimately benefit either the individual organism or public health as a whole. Yeah. So it yeah. leads to a powerful, and I think very close to your views, a powerful coherence about public uh, policy, yeah, which yeah. is that it turns out that if your concern is health, that health policy is not the only policy. Right. It's also right. educational policy, yeah. income policy, yeah. environmental policy. Yeah, just well. like yeah. the economic crisis is not going to be solved by economists, exactly. or not by economists alone, exactly. because it has many other facets. Exactly. But you know, another thing which is really interesting, which pulls a lot of things together that we have mm -hmm. been talking about mm -hmm. in, in the last half hour, and that is that when you say you can't follow the details, 
but you can still design an effective therapy. What that means to me is that you're moving from a quantitative approach to a qualitative approach. And that's one of the key characteristics of systems theory, complexity theory, and of Leonardo's science. Mm -hmm. Leonardo's science is a qualitative science, Mm -hmm. whereas Galileo, 100 years later, said explicitly, in order to study matter, we should only deal with quantifiable properties and we should not deal with qualities. And that was okay at his time to study, you know, balls rolling down inclined planes, pendulums, and so on. It was a very good strategy. But then with Descartes and Newton, this was extended to all of science, not just the study of matter, but also social phenomena, biological phenomena, and that's where we went wrong. And so now there's this general move toward quality again, which which I'm observing. So it seems to me that strategically, by taking Leonardo, who came before Galileo, and reclaiming him for for your vision of science, you're sort of rewriting the history of science to say, actually, a founder of modern science had this holistic, integrative perspective. Right, and science historians hate it. Right. You know? And you know why? I mean, I, I gave a lot of talks in Italy because the book is also out in Italian. Right. And Italians have a, quite a different relationship to Leonardo because it's, it's mm-hmm. their genius, you know, they're right. proud of him. Right. But the Italian historians of science, they would say that history is only if you can connect one thing to the other. And as you know, unfortunately, Leonardo's work were lost for mm-hmm. 200 years or, or hidden, not read. Mm-hmm. And so he didn't have any direct influence on subsequent mm-hmm. developments in science. So they say, you know, you can't do that. You can't say he was the founder of, you know, fluid dynamics or the founder of topology and so on. But, you know, I, I disagree with them because... Mm-hmm. Have you so- ever looked at the relationship between Leonardo and Leonardo's thought and Dante's thought? No, no. Mm-hmm. Because Dante yeah. is an extraordinary figure in, um, I don't know if you know this, but... Dante the, was earlier, no? I don't, uh, does anybody little, know Dante's little earlier, yeah. A little earlier, yeah. yeah. Dante um, is an extraordinary figure in modern psychology because he was so central to the development of Roberto Assagioli's thinking in psychosynthesis. I see. And uh-huh. psychosynthesis was one of the most beautiful integrative uh, uh-huh. psychologies, and so it would be fascinating to look at, at yeah. uh, the panels. There are some, I remember, there are some connections with Dante, like he, he quotes Dante, or he quotes people who quote Dante. Mm-hmm. You know, Leonardo didn't leave any footnotes in his manuscripts, and often there would be a couple of pages which were just copied from another book, mm-hmm. and since those were his private notebooks, mm-hmm. He didn't feel obliged to say, you know, this is now from so-and-so. He was but, a very secretive man. Yeah, yeah, yeah very yeah, secretive. Yeah. Uh, but um, I wanted to ask you, speaking about psychology, you talked about psychosynthesis, and before we talked about personal and uh, environmental health, mm-hmm. what about eco-psychology? Where, where has that gone? Is that still around, and do you find it helpful? I... I, I find it intriguing. Uh, Steve Kellert at Yale did some very interesting work on eco-psychology, among many others. I think, uh, and as you may, uh, he, I, was, was it Kellert working with someone else? 
Yeah, and I'm blocking, wrote the biophilia hypothesis about... Well, that's E.O. Wilson. Yeah, E.O. Oh, Wilson, yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, and um, I find it, uh, I find it a, a fundamentally important idea that uh, we cannot extract our psyches from the natural world. Yeah, I never made this connection between yeah. biophilia and eco-psychology, but you're right, yes, that's yeah. the sort of latest version of right. it. Right, and let me just say, in the yeah. Cancer Help Program, which we've now been doing for 24 years, these week-long retreats, we're doing our 150th retreat in December, and mm -hmm. one of the questions that I often ask people uh, is, uh, you know, what is your source of nourishment? Is it spiritual? Is it family? Is it whatever? It's surprising how often people say nature. Mm -hmm. It is surprising yeah. that how many people have that sense that nature is the highest source for them. And mm -hmm. conversely, it is surprising when people are asked to what do they attribute the development of their cancer. And part of what many people attribute it to is their deep sense of the tragedy of the destruction of the yeah. natural world. Yeah. It go, it's the, it's yeah. the flip side yeah. of this the spiritual power of nature yeah. for so many people. Yeah. And, and I don't think we really recognize the depth of mourning, uh, the yeah. depth of grief that takes place for so many people. How do we hold, how do we live in relationship with that? And combine this with the toxic environment. And combine it with it. But let me ask you this yeah. about your work with children, because children obviously become aware at a certain point that we're destroying the earth. Yes. Uh, how do you work with that in your work at the Center for Well, this, this uh, was a big problem um, because you don't want to, to burden a first grader with responsibility for saving the world. You don't mm -hmm. want to say, you know, we, we messed it up. It's, it's up to your generation you know, to, to, to solve the problems. Um, so, at a certain, a certain age, certainly in elementary school, you don't want to burden them with the problems, you just want to get a close connection with nature and teach them the actual knowledge and the actual way of thinking that is required to understand ecology. But then later, when, when you get to middle school and high school, um, uh, students become very aware of social issues and they become easily engaged and they feel a sense of uh, responsibility, maybe not so much responsibility, but justice, let's say. The, the, the sense of justice comes out in, in the teenage years. So we have, with the help of our teachers, we have adapted the pedagogy to, you know, throughout the grades. And so, but, so for a teenager, who, who says, hey, mom, we're destroying the earth. Uh, what, or to the teacher, how do you suggest that a teacher respond? Well, we, what we do is we suggest, uh, we say, uh, yes, we have been, but you know, now we have the awareness and we can do something about it. Mm -hmm. And you, you can do it yourself in, in your home and mm -hmm. in your school and when you go shopping and what kinds of things you do with your friends, you can mm -hmm. live and ecologically aware life mm -hmm. or an unaware life. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that helps them a lot because mm -hmm. then they can do something. By the way, I wanted to ask you this. 
What do you think the probability is that we are going to succeed in saving life on Earth in any reasonable form? Well, uh, I have uh, obviously thought about this uh, a lot, and uh, in the hidden connections, which I don't think we have, don't have, it there. have here, but uh, I address this question in the epilogue of the hidden connections, and I actually called some leaders of the civil society, like Vandana Shiva, Amory Lovins, Hazel Henderson, I, I called them and asked them the question, and, and then I gave the answers in, in, in the very end of, of the book. And I end up with a quotation uh, from Václav Havel, the, friend, the, the Czech playwright and former president, and I wish I could read it to you, but I, I remember it sort of more or less. Uh, Havel says, um, he turns this into a meditation on hope. I know this. And he says... He says, hope is not something that has to do with the state of the world, with probabilities, with assessments, with prediction. Hope, he says, is a state of the soul. And he goes on to say, um, hope means that you do something because it's right, regardless of the outcomes it will have. And yes. that has to me been to me my sort of guiding uh, right. principle. It's so interesting that, that you and I came at that from such different places yeah. because the way I quote Havel on this, it's the distinction between optimism and hope. Yeah, right. And optimism being the belief that everything is going to go right. And yeah. hope, by contrast, Havel says, yeah. is a deep orientation of the human soul yes. that can be held in the darkest of times. Yeah, right. And, and so that sense that it's almost impossible to be optimistic, but it's essential to be hopeful. Yeah, and know? also it's very poignant because yeah. uh, he, he had this insight in prison yes. you know, during the communist regime yeah. when it yeah. really seemed yeah. hopeless. So yeah. speaking of hope, uh, I heard you in Alaska recently give a lovely talk to a group of environmental grant makers about our shared enthusiasm for Lester Brown and his Plan B. And uh, let's yes. talk a little about what you're trying to do with Lester for the Obama administration. Yeah, uh, this is something I've been uh, very excited about uh, when the book came out, uh, which was, I think, last year, no? end of last year or something, or sometime during 2008. And I spent about half a year um, working on this book. First, I read it through from beginning to end. And let me just say, for those of you who don't know it, just a couple of words about the book. Uh, uh, Lester Brown, as you may know, is the founder of the World Watch Institute, where they have produced uh, a long series of reports, annual reports called State of the World, a very close analysis of environmental and other problems. And the first part of Plan B is, uh, again, this analysis now brought completely up to date. And it's a pretty depressing story, but I couldn't help admiring him for his thoroughly systemic approach to the problems. He really shows how everything is interconnected. And in fact, I drew a conceptual map 
I spent a long time you know, taking notes in the second reading of the book and then drew a conceptual map, which I sometimes show in my lectures, how these problems are all interconnected. So that's the first part. The second part, he shows the solutions and he calls it plan B because he says plan A is business as usual and we need a new approach. And he shows that not only do the major major problems of our time have solutions. We know the solutions. We have the knowledge. We have the technologies. What we're lacking is the political will. And he also shows that um, everything he proposes, and he goes in great detail about uh, environmental restoration, restoration of ecosystems, and uh, how does he call the other? Social policies, you know? social policies and, and uh, restorative policies of ecosystems. And he, every detailed proposal he has has been tried out somewhere in the world and has worked. And all we need to do is you know, spread it. And he also has, he, he works with a huge research team. He has a budget associated with every item. And the total uh, uh, annual budget is $192 billion dollars which really seemed enormous last year. Now, after the financial crisis, with seeing what we're giving to banks and so on, it's no longer such a big figure, but it's still a huge figure. But Lester Brown points out that this is about one-third of the U.S. military budget, and it's about one-sixth of the global military budget. So really, money is not the issue. The issue is the mindset. If we shifted our mindset and, and to say, as he says in the book, this plan B is really our defense budget because it really addresses the greatest threats to, to the nation and the world, then we would have the money. And this is where, again, systemic thinking comes in. So I really I analyzed it. I took all the notes. And uh, then I met Lester. I mean, I've known him for many years, but I don't know him very well. But we meet at conferences. And I met him at a conference in Brazil last year. And uh, I was a little nervous because I didn't know that he would be there. And I had put a major part of my lecture dedicated to his book. Mm -hmm. And he spoke before me. And so, you know, I rearranged the lecture a little bit. I left out the things he had already said. But I showed the map, you know. And, and he was really happy about it, and he published it on his website. Wonderful. And so I, I hope to work with him. Uh, also, you know, my brother got into the conversation, um, and uh, I actually suggested to him that maybe we could do a documentary about Plan B, and, and Lester said he would work with us, but the question is always the money. If we can raise the money, we can do a film. You know, one of the fascinating realities that, that relates to Plan B and, and our military budget. I don't know if you saw the New York Times today, but it turns out that it costs $1 million a year to keep one soldier in oh, Afghanistan. Really? Oh, really? It's a million dollars yeah. per soldier. Yeah. And yeah. What this, but what's interesting yeah. is that the, the senior um, people in the Congress are acutely aware of the costs of, of, yeah. of prosecuting these wars indefinitely. And I think that what I believe is that, you know, we've seen in historical terms the 
the acme of American power and that we're following the well-trodden path of superpowers which in their decline end up spending their blood and treasure overseas and in the final phase there are uh, uh, financial manipulations that collapse. That's a very common yeah, yeah. thing. But what happens is that um, you can't sustain these uh, military empires yes. indefinitely. Mm. And uh, so I think what may take place is that as our capacity to pursue these global military strategies decline, and as ecological consciousness rises, there may be a point at which uh, the, you know, But again, you know, you know, if, if I ever get a chance to, to talk to the Obama administration, what I would point out is that systemic thinking can, can really help because um, one major problem in Afghanistan is corruption. And I recently read a piece about that. What happens is that uh, people are paid very little. Mm-hmm. Uh, for instance, um, you know, the um, police is paid very little. So when the, the ministry of whatever it is, interior or whatever the ministry for the police is, when they distribute the salaries, they come from the top, and at each stage, people take things off, you know, like the mafia, you know? Uh, and so the, the policeman on the beat is paid very little. So the, what does the policeman on the beat do? He holds up the next car and says, you know, give me five whatever, currency five dollars and you can pass, mm-hmm. you know? And, and it's just, it goes th- throughout the society. But if you did a systemic analysis, and I don't know enough about the details to do it, mm-hmm. if you did a systemic an- analysis, I'm convinced that if you infused relatively little money at mm-hmm. the right places mm-hmm. to sort of turn these processes around, it would be far, far less than the million dollars, than the $100,000 for the soldier. Absolutely. You know? I wanted to ask you, and then I want to open it up to, to questions from our, our colleagues in the audience. Um, there's a movement. Are you familiar with the transition movement? Absolutely. Transition movement? I teach at Schumacher College, which yeah. is in, in Devon in England, mm-hmm. and that's where the transition movement started in Totnes. Right. And I know, I know the guy who, right. who runs it, who founded it. So yeah. that has, has uh, really taken hold in West Moran. And there are a mm-hmm. whole series of meetings being held in Bolinas, Point Reyes, mm-hmm. and other towns uh, about that. And I wanted to ask you, from your perspective, uh, here we are largely an audience of people based in West Moran. Uh, what would you suggest is the greatest contribution that people who live in small communities like this around the world can make? In other words, where, what is our leverage point, our specific contribution, whether through the transition movement or through other strategies that from your perspective, optimizes our contribution? Well, I think uh, small communities are uh, at the forefront of the move towards sustainability uh, because sustainability, among many other things, means moving from the global to the local and, and not uh, you know, trucking around food thousands of miles before it's eaten, but have local food. And uh, you know, similarly with you know, local, local work and local businesses, 
rather than you know the big uh, boxes mm -hmm. of WalMarts and mm -hmm. so on. So I think uh, small communities are at the forefront, and the transition movement I think is a brilliant idea. And uh, to me, uh, the most the most brilliant part of it is the very name, transition mm -hmm. movement, transition town, because since everything is so interconnected, nobody can live a sustainable life today. Not an individual, not you or me, and not a community. We can go you know, farther or less far, and communities can go further than, than individuals, but still, the community of Bolinas also depends on, on the larger Marine County and the Bay Area and, and the state and the nation. Mm -hmm. And so I think to call it transition to sustainability is, is really very, very effective. Mm -hmm. And I think that is a framework that is extremely hopeful. And I think what, what you can do is uh, just go along this path and also publicize it. And, and especially you, Michael, with, um, with your expertise and knowledge and wisdom, if you can show the world that transition towns uh, lead a less stressful life, and therefore what we talked about before, these pressures that lead to certain channels of illnesses are uh, you know, less dangerous or less effective in these transition towns, then you would put it really on the map and I think would directly relate to your work here. Thank you for that. I'd, I'd like to open it up and I'd like to ask people, Jerry Manders here, welcome Jerry, you've done some wonderful work connected let, let with Lester. Let yeah. me ask you, given my yeah. fruit juice fast, I will yeah. disappear for five minutes. Okay. No, two minutes. <laughs> okay, let's I'll take be... this uh, thing off you. All right, good. I'll, I'll be right back. Good. And while we're waiting, the hat. Uh, the new school subsists on a truly homeopathic budget, and we're able to have people like Fritschoff come here because you help make it possible. So I'm going to give this to Harriet Cosman, one of our wonderful new school volunteers, and she can pass the hat, and we're grateful to you. Excuse me? Well, you just keep an eye on it so it, it goes where it's supposed to go. So, um, Howard, let's start with your question. Oh, um, good afternoon. I just wanted to say that um, you mentioned the 70s as being long ages ago, and um, uh, Devin, I listened to you with great interest about 30 years ago at uh, Darlington Hall at one of a series of conferences there called Future Trends in Education. Right. And um, your, your talks at that time were one of the reasons why I actually came to California because it seemed to me that this was where the, the, uh, the new thinking and the, the future of mankind was really being generated. And um, I've just seen today we, we opened our bike path in Bolinas as part of the transition town uh, movement and that was a beautiful thing to see children from quite tiny children on quite tiny bicycles up to elderly adults on elderly bicycles. <laughs> you know, riding all together down to the school and back. And I just wanted to thank you for still being here and still inspiring us. Uh, thank you, Howard. 
Thank you. Very, very kind of you. I have an, a British Norton touring bike with a three-speed and a shopping basket. <laughs> they tell me it's the Rolls-Royce among bicycles. Your question. My question? Yeah. What do you find hopeful in the world today? What do I find hopeful in the world today? Well, that, uh, you know, these alternative uh, solution that uh, Lester Brown uh, chronicles in, in his book are really taking off with, with a speed beyond all expectations. Just uh, the expansion of wind power, for instance, is just, it's just growing by leaps and bounds more than anybody would have imagined even two years ago. And, and he just published a, a new edition of the book which is called Plan B 4.0, it's the fourth edition. And the point O is just a high-tech, high you know, gizmo. But uh, he shows that wind power just in the last two years has, has grown so much more than he thought two years ago. And uh, also the, uh, the development in education that I see with the Center for Eco-Literacy, that people come from all over the world. And uh, we have now... Uh, reached about um, 300 schools uh, in uh, 60 countries uh, with a total of about 5 million children. So mm -hmm. it's, it's really huge. I just heard the statistics uh, a few uh, weeks ago because, uh, you know, for years I've asked my colleagues to get some statistics so that I can tell people how many schools are we working with. And now uh, they have finally done it in a very meticulous way with the world map and everything. So, so this is a huge influence because these kids, when they grow up, influence other people. So, you know, a lot is really changing and a lot is happening. And also um, the developments in South America are very... Uh, uh, hopeful because uh, the whole continent is slowly detaching itself from the IMF and the World Bank and this, this global domination of uh, you know, leading economic powers and, and they are becoming you know, strong economic forces and political forces themselves and, and of course we have seen that uh, um, Recently, I don't know whether this is due to Obama or, or somebody else, but they, they changed the meetings from the G7 to the G20, which right. is still a small group, but it's much better than the G7. So, so I think uh, the South is having much more of a voice. And I should also mention the, uh, the growth of uh, the global coalition of NGOs, the civil society, which has become a major center of power in addition to the two traditional centers of power of government and business. There's now a third pole civil society which is as connected and as global as, as business and uh, is as powerful. And, and I have to, like you did, pay tribute to Jerry Manda with his uh, International Forum on Globalization because they are the think tank behind this coalition of NGOs into this very, very powerful global network. So I think that is extremely hopeful. 
Yes, on that point about Jerry, not to rag on him too much, but uh, Jerry was one of our new school th uh, speakers a while ago, and I spent some time in the, in the foundation community, and I remember talking to a friend at one of the major foundations that had been uh, working on globalization issues for a long time, and he said, you know, we were all playing this insider game that we thought was going to result in change. And he said, Jerry Mander was the only one who was thinking about, not the only one, but he, he was thinking about a completely different concept of how to approach this, and he turned out to be right. You know, that th th it was uh, the International Forum on Globalization, as, as you're suggesting, had a huge impact, uh, and really Jerry's uh, thinking uh, was very central to that. You had a question right here, please. Yes, um, you had said that Lester Brown with Plan B um, says that basically we have the solutions um, technologically and economically. It's just a question of political will to solve the problems we're facing today. And I'm curious to know what, um, as China, which is becoming, we say, a world leader, um, my graduate professor says we're undergoing a historical shift of our power center and economic center from the west to the east, yes. heading over to China. And I'm wondering, what is China's opinion about world systems? And do we know much about that? Are they participating in some of this research? Well, the question is, what is China's view on uh, you know, the, the current problems and the world systems? And I'm, I'm not a China expert, and I know from uh, discussing this with others that it's a difficult question because China is huge, and there's not one China, you know, there, there are many trends within China, but there is tremendous environmental awareness in, in China uh, growing now in various, uh, at various levels of government, and they, are, they have invested billions and billions of dollars in, in wind power and other alternative energies. They're fully aware, although they still invest in coal plants, but they're fully aware that this needs to change and, and they're going along. I know that you know, one of the big, our big energy experts, Amory Lovins, goes to China regularly and you know, speaks to thousands of people and, and consults with government and, and companies. And as you know, President Obama is in China today, and the last thing I read was that he uh, is going to meet with the Chinese president to talk about technology transfer from the United States and uh, to offer technology transfer, and guess what kind of technology? Green technology. I think that's absolutely extraordinary. That that hasn't happened so far. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Jan. Yeah. Um, of course, like everyone else, most ooh, my back. Um, <laughs> um, I want to thank you for being a true uh, vanguard trailblazer of integrated knowledge, holistic cognition, bringing us out of the woods. Uh, where we were, most of us, educated along different specialized tracks and knowing that this wasn't the right track to follow but really not having many resources on how to integrate our information. So I, I really thank you for helping uh, create some new paths, opening up so we can bring things together.
Did you guys decide how much you can embarrass me with compliments? <laughs> but thank you. I'm very, very grateful. Do you know, did you know Leonard Schlein? Yes. I knew him very well. And then yeah. he wrote a book on Leonardo da Vinci's Yes, book. which is not out yet, I think. No? It, I talked to his daughter. It's going to come out in a few uh -huh. months. But I'm intrigued to see what angle he's taken on. Well, uh, Leonard, Leonard Schlein, who, who unfortunately died recently, uh, was um, a neuroscientist and made a lot of connections with uh, neuroscience and, and various uh, phenomena in the world, wrote a number of books and about all kinds of things, but his strength was always neuroscience. And so he speculated about Leonardo's brain about the fact that Leonardo was ambidextrous and various other things and, and what that would have meant. And um, he and I started our Leonardo research around the same time and he got sidetracked by a lot of other things. And, uh, but uh, right when my book was published in 2007, we got together and, and you know, I gave him one of the first copies and he read it very carefully and came back with a huge uh, you know, yellow stickers in, in the book and questions and so on. So we have been in communication. It's going to be an interesting book. Yeah. It's been a wonderful conversation. Yeah. I want to get back to Leonardo da Vinci himself, uh, which is, um, as a painter, you said something very interesting. You said that as a painter, he he uh, was uh, almost like empathically enacting nature. Yes. That nature was entering yes. into the creative process yes. of painting. Yes. And uh, what occurred to me was that in some ways that's, that was a path not taken by science because what happened um, is that science, after Galileo, went off into the highly conceptual and, as you said, quantitative rather than qualitative yeah. Path. Absolutely. And yes. um, so I'm very interested. There is a kind of a, a, a sort of a minor path in Western traditions. Uh, Henri Bergson talked about it, where he talked about direct intuitive knowledge, yes. which was which was thinking in a more direct, experienced. Right. Goethe, for, you know, it's another one. Yes, exactly. major this, figure. This was. This is yeah. like a, a voice which off and on would come out, and I think now it's back. Yes. And I think you're documenting it, that uh, this is coming from the humanistic end, mm -hmm. part of this great synthesis. Yeah. Yeah. So I very much see it in that way, and, yeah. and I, I comment on that in, in the book also. There's a whole uh, sort of virtual lineage of philosophers and scientists who came after Leonardo and continued this emphasis on experiencing nature, on uh, studying its living forms. And, and Leonardo, not only in his painting, but also in his um, designs of machines, was what we now would call an eco-designer. He never tried to dominate nature, but to engage in dialogue. And for example, you know that he was fascinated with flying machines his whole life. And when he talked about his flying machine, he called it uccello, the bird. And he always talked, and, and my bird will spread its wings and so on, really in a, a sort of animistic way, totally so, so relating so to nature. Marion Weber. Yeah. I am curious to learn more about the documentary that you're thinking to produce. Um, you mentioned it for 
Well, the documentary we are thinking to produce uh, would be a documentary about uh, Plan B, about the many examples that exist in the world to move towards sustainability. And we would send a team around the world. Lester Brown would make the contacts for us. And we would film you know, what, is, uh, what is happening. And um, to do the uh, um, preliminary uh, research and set up the whole thing. My brother needs half a million dollars, in case you were asking. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's the stumbling block. We, we, we you know. If, if we get the money, you know, Lester is ready to help us with the most updated information. And I think it would be a great film because you would see what's happening in the world, you know, what you know, is often very little known. Jerry. Um, there's a, I want to ask you both, actually, about a sort of conundrum that exists today in the, in the sustainability movement with all the got two parts. One, you have a president who is, um, I think, aware of the situation, but who still continues to advocate for, advocate for growth. As, as rapidly as possible, we should be growing the economy. And um, so the solution to the financial crisis is to feed the institutions and the processes that uh, caused the crisis, such as the banks and the and the automobile industry and the you know new housing units, his solution has been so far the expansion, the continued expansion of economic growth on a finite plan. I know you, I know you both of you are, see the paradox in that. But um, first of all, how it's very very crucial when you speak about conceptual change, that that be addressed conceptually and then ways are found to uh, design economic processes which don't lead us to that problem. And the second part of that question has to do with um, some of the, uh, you mentioned Amy Lovins and so on. I, I, I've begun to have a little bit of a problem with Amy Lovins because he seems to be saying that the more we can design technologies which are so-called sustainable technologies, that we can maintain our, our industrial society at sort of the present level, and that, um, and that, that we're not going to reach limits anymore. But you know, do you know Jeevan's paradox? You know, you know that, right? Which is to say that if the thing is, is better, and it's greener, and it's more sustainable in itself in terms of energy use or material use, people will then buy more. So it's like if one Prius is good, then let's get seven Priuses, and that and that and that kind of becomes a sort of self-defeating uh, process. And that seems to be a lot of we have this green festival going on in San Francisco right now. That's all about consuming more, as far as I can see. But it's consuming more for better things. But the net effect in terms of energy use and material use, even if it's clean instruments, is a negative effect. Right. So I don't mean to set you off on two difficult questions there, but, but I'd really like to hear you discuss well, that. I'm happy to start. Yeah. Uh, there are a lot of things uh, 
in, in this commentary. Uh, none of them are known to me because we have had these conversations before. And, and I, I completely agree with you. Um, just two things. Let, let me talk to what you said in the very beginning and at the very, very end. Uh, I agree with you about Obama and his advocating growth. I cringe every time I hear him when he says that. Uh, today, when I read the report about China, they said, well, China uh, is also feeling the economic crisis and they want to get back to growth as soon as possible. And I thought, oh, no, not again. No. Uh, I thought about this a lot uh, during the last year and uh, um, invited my our friend and colleague Hazel Henderson to write a paper with me, which we uh, just finished. And the paper is called Qualitative Growth. And we start with this paradox in a little different way, but what we say is the following. In, during the past year, the economic crisis has dominated the news, and every day we hear so-called bad economic news. And most of this bad economic, economic news is good news for the earth, right? People are driving less, they're buying fewer luxury goods, they are closing down malls, they're closing down car factories, and so on. That's all great news. But at the same time, of course, those companies don't cut their profits, but fire people, and so there's rising unemployment and, and human hardship. So we're saying, how can we maintain a system where we have the good ecological news and not the bad social news. A, a, a system that makes economic sense, is ecologically sustainable, and is socially just. And we uh, propose to use the concept of qualitative growth because no growth, I feel very strongly, is not an answer, not only because it doesn't sell, but also because in nature, you look outside and there's growth everywhere. But not everything grows at the same time. There's always a coexistence of growth and decay. There is growth that starts with expansion, but then slows down and continues in terms of maturity, of, of inner development. And so all of these things we call qualitative growth. And we say we need a shift uh, from measuring quantitative growth with the, the gross uh, domestic product to qualitative indicators. And Hazel Henderson has been a pioneer in developing a few of those qualitative indicators. And so we go into some detail to also say then how can this shift be made? Well, we need to distinguish between what should grow and what should not grow, good growth and bad growth. And it's fairly easy to see from the ecological point of view, good growth is you know, growth of alternative energy sources, sustainable practices, you know, local communities, and so on. And bad growth is the one that is environmentally destructive, that, that uses up resources, and so on. Now, the, the other part, the last part uh, of, of your question of, you know, how to go, if you are already an environmentalist, how to avoid getting trapped in this system, now we're going to buy green and let's buy more green books. I believe the answer to that is precisely the transition movement, because the transition movement emphasizes local community where you find 
happiness not in acquiring more goods, but in acquiring more relationships. And to me, the shift from goods to relationships would, would be the answer. That's one reason why this transition movement, I think, is, is such a good idea and so hopeful. But there were some middle things also. I hope you caught well, them. Well, I'll and... just mention, you know, we could do a whole afternoon on this. And I'll just mention two points. One is, uh, I remember Franklin Roosevelt had a group of progressives come to him and make a case like this. And Roosevelt listened to them and said, I agree with you completely, now make me do it. Mm -hmm. And I think the point about Obama is he is a politician. He is working with the possible. The forces against him are overwhelming and in fact growing. He's in fact losing ground to you know, regressive forces even now. And so our hope is to make him do it, because he would like to do it, but we'd have to make him do it. So that's point one. Uh, the other point is, I think a very understudied aspect of this whole thing about growth is the nature of money. And Bernard Lightower's wonderful book called The Future of Money. And uh, you know, Lightower, as you may remember, who helped invent the euro, uh, foresees, uh, basically says that the fiat currencies, which are based from the start on, um, on the creation of debt and therefore require interest to sustain themselves, uh, are a principal engine of inexorable growth. And he proposes two types of currencies, one of which are local currencies, social currencies, which are based on exchange of local services. And the other is a global currency he calls the Terra, which is based on a basket of commodities. Now, interestingly, I just learned that there was an early economist named Fisher who suggested that the dollar be based on a basket of commodities instead of gold. But I think that what is happening right in front of our eyes as the dollar declines with all this paper that we and other central banks are pumping into the world is that there is a, f a flight to real things, i.e. commodities, and that commodities are becoming the new currency. And it is not a long step from there to recreating uh, currencies based on commodities which would dramatically shift the nature of power, uh, decline the power of central banks, and, uh, and create and move us toward a non-interest-based currency system of both local currencies, national and global currencies, the, you know, tied to real things that I think would fundamentally shift us. So of the 500 answers I could have offered, that's one that, um, that strikes me right now. We have time for one more question, and yes, right there. Well, it seems to me, in just taking in this sort of conversation and the responses, that we're really talking about ecology of values, and that the, in terms of that we're certain, and not all values are mm -hmm. the same. Uh, mm -hmm. they, some are more complex than others. Mm -hmm. uh, and in order to do that, uh, there needs to be, in my mind, uh, much more attention to people being able to have conversations and engagement around what matters. Mm -hmm. And I think there's too much um, advocacy, in my view, and not enough inquiry, and not enough shared conversations about what really matters. 
because my experience was, I've been you know, in the environmental field for many years, and uh, as an academic, I started to work with people in organizations mm -hmm. and uh, finding people that I didn't hang out with that maybe represented the other, other parts of the mm -hmm. political spectrum. And I found out that they care about the same things that I care about. Mm -hmm. But there's something about our language and yeah. the kind of polemical way that we go about advocating our points of view. I'm a long-standing West Marinite, and mm -hmm. so I uh, engage in that, but I also get the, you know, in, in the midst of heated conversations about people where we share a lot of the same values, but our means by which we go about engaging is really, um, in my mind, immature. Yeah, I kind of agree with and, you. And so I'm talking about, so how could we talk about what matters? And I think we can build bridges because all the things that you just suggested in the last, say, 10 minutes really is about people being willing to um, inquire together about what matters because none of us wants to have the kinds of problems that we have. We just have a, a variety of ways in which we, pathways in which to come to yeah. resolution. And so I just think what I heard here, especially with the notion of qualitative growth, it's really a question about what, what values do we want um, to sustain and what ones do we want to maybe deprioritize in this moment in time. So anyway, I just wanted to Thank you. comment, hear from you. Both so we're going to give Fritsch off the last but word. But there's also, I think, I, I completely agree with you, but there's also uh, an educational component, a knowledge component, because we do live in this very complex world, and we need to have the means to solve our problems. And this is why the work of Lester Brown, I think, is so important, because he actually shows what, what can be done to really put these values into practice. Fritjof Capra, yeah. thank you for being with us at the New School. Thank you, Michael.